So we are entrenched in the book of Acts. We've been here for the last couple weeks, and uh, we're going to be moving forward. Uh, we, we read through and looked at the first half of chapter 5. If you want to turn there, I believe it's around page 630 in the Bible in front of you, if you want to follow along. Last week we saw um, people, two people, that lied to God, and they lost their lives because of it. They dropped dead at the moment of their lie. And I started to think through that again this week, like, wow, God, like there's a part of me in my flesh who wants to believe that's it's kind of extreme. But it's not the only occurrence in Scripture where people were, were uh, held accountable to stepping into the presence of God lightly. And the one that I'll share is just uh, when David is, is moving the Ark of the Covenant and they're bringing it back into the city and God made the, the command that you should put the poles on either side to carry it and no one is worthy of touching the Ark of the Covenant. No one is worthy of touching it. And they're, they're traveling and it hits a bump, the cart that it's on hits a bump and it starts to fall off of the cart and one of the men reaches up and and saves it from falling, and the second his hand touches the Ark of the Covenant, he drops dead. Again, another example where you could, in your flesh, say, God, that's kind of extreme, right? He just didn't want the Ark of the Covenant to fall on the ground. But it was somebody who, in that moment, believed that the Ark's existence and the Ark's pristineness and the Ark's uh, safety depended upon him, and it didn't depend on God. God had already said it's His, and it's to be held in high esteem. And this priest who did that in the Old Testament lost his life because he casually entered into something that God told him to take very seriously. Fast forward to Acts chapter 5, and we have Ananias and Sapphira who hear, hear about this man Barnabas who gives a piece of land, and he, he sells the land, and he gives the proceeds and lays it at the apostles' feet, basically saying, whatever needs arise amongst the people of God, use this to meet them. They need these resources more than I need the land. That's what Barnabas was saying with his actions. Well, Ananias and Sapphira are sitting on some wealth themselves, and they're kind of, if you read between the lines, they're, they're kind of enamored by the amount of attention that Barnabas is getting for his generous act, so they decide to do the same thing. But they don't want to give all of it. They just want people to think they gave all of it. So we don't know the dollar amounts assigned to this, but we saw last week greed and a pride-fueled desire for recognition make its way into the church. That's the first time we've seen that in the emergence of the church. I'm not saying it didn't exist before. Sinners always carry sin around with them. But this is the first time we see it be brought into the presence of the church in the book of Acts. Now, it didn't take long, relatively speaking. We're only five chapters in. It didn't take long for pride and greed and a desire to be noticed, and a desire for me to become more important than God to come into the flock. It didn't take long, relatively speaking. So let's say they sell the field for uh, or a piece of land, whatever it was, for $100,000, and they decide they want to keep 40 of it. So they come to the apostles, they give them $60,000, and they say, we sold this piece of land for $60,000. We want to give every penny of it to you to divvy out to the people of God. 
Now, Peter's filled with the Spirit. He knows that Ananias is lying. He looks at him and says, Why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart this day? When the land was yours, didn't you have the right to keep it? And when you sold it, didn't you have the right to give whatever you wanted to give to the church? You didn't have to give anything. And whatever you decided to give, you could have just said, this is what I decide to give. But that's not what you did. You lied. But you're not lying to me, Ananias. You're lying to a holy God. And Ananias, in that moment, breathed his last breath and dropped dead. And young men came in, grabbed his body, wrapped it, took it outside, and buried it. That's the end of it. Three hours later, his wife comes in, and Peter says, I have a very important question I want to ask you, and I'm only going to ask it once. Did you sell the land that you donated all that money? Did you sell that land for $60,000? And she says, yes, that's exactly what we sold it for. And Peter says, the young men who carried, the feet of the young men who carried your husband are waiting to carry you out too, and she dropped dead. Now, again, morbid story, not a fun one to preach through uh, just at the surface level, but necessary and, and really shouldn't be shied away from because we should not enter into God's presence casually. We shouldn't think that we can carry our sin with us and just put it over here on this seat and I'm going to sit on this seat and I'm going to pretend this doesn't exist for a little bit and then whenever I get up to leave, I'm going to grab that and take it with me. And if we're honest, that's a lot of times how we enter into the presence of God. Now, it says right after that, both instances, after Ananias is dead and after, uh, sorry, my throat's making me sound like a Muppet right now. <clears throat> okay, I'm back. Uh, after Ananias drops and after Sapphira drops, both instances, it tells us in Acts 5, that the people were filled with great fear of the Lord. That, that fear has been taught to us as like this reverence. Fear just means being respectful. That's what we've been told, and it does. But that's not the only thing it means. It also means fear. It also means a complete and total recognition of what God is capable of and His holiness. So we should enter into the presence of God with respect, yes, but also with fear of knowing what he is capable of. Remember back to whenever Isaiah was, was in the presence of God, the first things out of his mouth was, I'm not worthy of this experience. I can't handle this glory. Kill me. Just take my life. It's too much for me to process. It's too much for me to experience. So there's a sense that what, we're trying, what Luke's trying to get across to the reader in Acts 5 the first part is to see the contrast of what it looks like when the church is functioning healthily and in unity and wanting the Spirit to reign supreme and what it looks like when we lose sight of that. That's what he's, he's trying to show us the contrast with very real-life examples, not figurative language, very real-life examples of what happens. So we're going to look at the rest of chapter 5 today, which comes out of a direct result. As a direct result, there's more motivation amongst the people now. There's, there's a direct result of what's happening, what has happened, Ananias and Sapphira. So uh, if you want to look at chapter 5, we're going to look at, at uh, verses 12 through 16 first. So uh, 
Chapter 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." Let's just look right there because this is, this, is as a, this is direct timeline after the incident that happens with Ananias and Sapphira. So there is, uh, there is great fear, if you look at verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear meaning that they're, they're hearing these stories and they're saying, whoa, we've never seen this kind of stuff happen amongst the God that the Jews have taught us about. We've never seen that kind of activity happen amongst the God that the Jews have educated us on our whole lives. So now there is audience to the gospel that wasn't necessarily audience to the gospel before, and God's going to do, He's going to up the ante a little bit here because He's going to allow the Spirit of God to race through the apostles' veins and there's going to be some amazing things that happen in their midst. But there's, there can be some confusion here, so let's just look through this. First of all, I want to remind us that they're in Solomon's portico. That's what verse 12 tells us. They were all together in Solomon's portico. So there's many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. Now, this is important for us to understand because Solomon's portico was sort of the main gathering spot outside of the temple. Do you remember what else happened? right outside of Solomon's portico just a few weeks ago. The lame man was raised up and given complete health. The man who had been crippled since birth for over 40 years was in this spot. That's the first time we see a miracle happen, a miraculous healing happen in this spot through the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the apostles. Now it's becoming a more regular occurrence in this spot, but the setting is important because the setting is the main gathering spot outside of the temple. This is the domain of the religious elite, and it's being overtaken by common, ordinary men, common, uneducated, ordinary men, as the religious leaders like to call them. That's important to remember. Now, when you look at the, ver the tail end of verse 12, it tells us, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, this can be a confusing verse, so let's look at it real quick. You maybe have heard that or read that, or maybe you're listening to it now and you're thinking that doesn't make any sense. Who is they? Who is them? Who are they talking about? Does anyone want to admit to not understanding what this verse means? Anyone? Everyone's like, no, I'm a Bible scholar. Okay. So I had to, I had to do some reading in on this because I, I didn't understand the wording. I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. But there are two, um, two ways to look at this passage. First of all, we need to know that the they at the end of verse 12 and the them at verse 13 is the same group. They and them is the same group. That helps us understand it. That's the first big clue to helping us get an answer. 
So if, if at the end of verse 12, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Okay, so we need to know who they were, they and them being the same person, and we need to know who the people were that held them in high esteem. Make sense? Okay, so here's the two ways that we can look at that. We can say that they and them refer to the followers of Jesus. They and them were the people who had received this gift of grace and were living in this church setting, that they were the ones that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they were the ones who were sharing their resources, and they were the ones in one another's homes, and they were the ones who were, who were dividing things up and, and living this thing out. We can say that the they and them was that group of people, the ones who were the followers of Jesus. And the people that held them in high esteem would have been the people who had not received salvation yet, people who had not yet believed in this Jesus. So they were so fearful of the power of God in this moment that they didn't desire a similar fate to Ananias and Sapphira, so they didn't want to false identify with something that they hadn't committed their lives to yet. So now you've got a whole group of people that are living out this dynamic faith in Jesus, and you obviously have people by probably the scores of thousands that are on the outside looking in, and they haven't yet made the decision to follow the teachings of Jesus yet through what they're hearing in the apostles' teaching and what they're seeing in the lives of the church. So when they see them, when the, when the people who don't yet believe see the people who have believed, they don't dare identify with them, but they hold them at high esteem. That's one way of looking at these verses. The other way that we can look at it is that they and them actually refers to the apostles themselves. And no one dared identify with this very exclusive pocket of men who sat under the direct person-to-person, face-to-face teachings of Jesus that were now being used by the Spirit of God inside them to teach and perform miracles. And so people who were, as we're going to see a man named Gamaliel tell us about, trying to start their own movements, trying to stand up in front of crowds and say, hey, listen, I've got something important to say too. Don't give Peter all your attention. Listen to me too. If there were people like that in the crowds, they stopped standing up and trying to draw attention to themselves after the Ananias and Sapphira incident. And so the second, like I said, the second way we can look at that is that they and them refers to the actual apostles and the people that are holding them in high esteem are anyone that's not an apostle. Now you can look at that either way, and it just might actually be both of them that Luke's trying to convey. It might actually be both instances that Luke's trying to convey here in this one verse. He obviously knew that whoever was reading this letter that he's writing understood what he meant because he wrote it that way. But we're thousands of years removed from this, this moment in history, and so we're left with what we have. So those are the two ways that we can interpret that, that passage based on what we've seen before and based on what we're about to see. It could be one of those. It could be both of those. I don't think it's anything outside of those if that makes sense. Hopefully that's helpful. It was helpful to me to look into that. 
So we come out of that. We have a whole group of people going back to Acts 2. Remember, it says that these people were living in community together. They were sharing meals in one another's homes. They were, uh, they were sharing their resources. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were attending services at the temple, all these things. And then it says, and they gained favor with all the people, and God added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's at the tail end of chapter 2. So what we're seeing is a repeat of that. Through the incident with the Ananias and Sapphira, there's actually a reinforced respect and honor given to this whole movement of Jesus because the people held them in high esteem. Verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Think about that. Dusty and I were talking about this on Tuesday morning. Uh, Think about that. Just look at the raw data that we already have. We have plugged in a a moment where Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people come to know the Lord. We have that number. We have his second sermon where 5,000 people come to know the Lord. That's our second number. Now, we also see, we don't have exact numbers, but we see that after the 3,000, it says that God added to their number daily those who are being saved. So that number is increasingly growing. Then we have another sermon in Acts 3, 5,000 people come to know the Lord, and there's, there's alluded to that more and more people were coming to know the Lord. So if we just go with the 8,000, this is a short amount of time, folks. 8,000 people coming to understand who Jesus is, and we know the number's bigger than that. And, and we're in church world, so we like to... 8,000 is the number we have. Let's go with 27,000. Uh, so we, we don't know exactly how many, but if we're just going to go with the numbers we do have, 8,000, we know that God added to their number daily those who are being saved. We know the number is bigger than 8,000. And at this point in the history of the church, it says that both men and women, multitudes of them, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. More than ever. Why? Why? Because they saw God as an entity that was worthy of respect and reverence and was a giver to them. It wasn't just that they were afraid of Him. These people who were understanding who Jesus was and were allowing the Spirit to reside in them, they were seeing grace played out. That why would Barnabas sell land and give it to me? Well, because that's what Jesus did. That's the kind of stuff Jesus did. And so when Meg talked about, restore to me the joy of my salvation, that's what David prays. And so in the moment of conversion, in the moment that you received Christ, if you're sitting here today and you are a believer in Jesus, the moment that you understood your sin and you said, I need Jesus more than anything, was a moment hopefully you will never forget. And at that moment, you probably would have done anything for Christ. You would have gone anywhere. You would have sold anything. You would have quit doing anything. You would have told anyone. So when David prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation, he's saying, take me back to that moment when I understood grace at a level I have forgotten. And so what's bringing people in by the scores, the hundreds and thousands into the church isn't that Peter is such a dynamic communicator. 
isn't that when the worship band gets up, they have really good lights and fog. It's not because their podcast gets a lot of hits. It's because they have an authenticity amongst them that is rooted in the person of Jesus. And these people are all living right now. In this period of time, they are living out of the joy of their salvation. And people are seeing that. They're seeing the power of God manifested greatly through miracles and through punishing sin. And they're saying, why would I ever want to live without that? Why would I ever want to live without that? That's why people are coming to Christ by scores. Now listen to this. This is when things, if you want to see crazy things happen, you just camp out in the book of Acts for a while because there are some crazy things that are happening as the church, church is getting birthed. And it is just massive. It's explosions. It's not little things. It's big things. So we go from that, multitudes of both men and women, more than ever, coming to know Christ, verse 15, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Let that sink in. Peter has the power of the Holy Spirit coursing through him at such a high level that if people believe in faith that God can heal them and they're within the shadow cast of Peter, they're healed. That's how much power is coming through the Spirit of the living God manifested in Peter's life. The only other time we've seen anything like this is in the life of Jesus. It's the only other time. A woman who had, who, had been, who had been bleeding for years, has barely any strength, works her way through a crowd. She's unclean. No one wants anything to do with her. Jesus is on his way to heal a little girl, and she reaches up, and she just touches the hem of his robe, and she's healed. But Jesus says, I'm going to stop here, because I, I felt, basically he says, I felt power come out of me. And he, he leans down and talks to this woman. And when she had faith that if she could just get close enough to Jesus to touch his clothes, she would be healed. If she could just, if she could just touch his clothes. She believed he was powerful enough to do that. That's what people are believing in this moment. They're believing that that same Jesus is powerful enough to heal them of anything that's wrong with them. And he's doing that now, not through him. He's doing that through the apostles, and in particular, we see a lot of it in the life of Peter. Just so you're aware, the main character that we see, obviously, in Scripture is Jesus. But the one that we see Jesus manifesting His power through the most in the first 12 chapters of Acts is Peter. From Acts 13 on, we see that shift to Paul. You'll, you'll start to see Peter emphasized and talked about less and less from 13 on, and it'll be shifted over to the works of Paul. And we'll get into that when we get there. But now it says, verse 16, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, you know, Samaria and Judea, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. They were all healed. All healed. 
people were hearing of what was happening and they were willing to bring cots of sick people and carry them from outside Jerusalem into Jerusalem just to, if they could at least be within the shadow cast of Peter, they believed that the power of God was enough to heal them in that moment. And it was. So, I want you to put yourself there because you're probably viewing this the way I view this as a follower of Jesus. And you're saying, wow, that's amazing. That's unbelievable. I can't believe that. Those are kind of thoughts maybe running through your brain. Those are kind of the ones that run through my brain when I look at this because I'm viewing this from the lens of a follower of Jesus. We're about to see what it looks like from the other side. The people who aren't very happy about this, and we're about to see why. So, now, uh, reminder, quick reminder, we are seeing scores of thousands of people coming to know Christ. Most of them are finding out about Jesus because He's being taught in Solomon's portico right outside of the temple, right inside the beautiful gate, the gathering spot, the hot spot for the Jerusalem uh, Jewish leaders of the day. This used to be their turf. In their minds, it still is, but they're starting to see it slip, and it's bothering them. So let's look at verse 17, because I think you need to see everything up to verse 17 the way that hopefully we've been able to portray it, because there's a lot of good happening. There is a mountaintop experience, and we see a bunch of men who have built their lives on temporal things and built up their own kingdoms on sinking sand, and it's starting to crumble. And so what they want to do is they want to get up to that mountaintop and then push the people off of it so that they can be kings of the mountain again. So they're going to flex their muscles here. Starting at verse 17, we're going to see persecution start to enter into the church at a whole new level. So verse 17, we're going to read through verse 42, so follow along. But the high priest rose up, and all were with him. That is the part of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, I'm going to stop there because I think we need to understand what's happening here. The Sadducees is a sect of Jewish leadership that were part of the high priests and in that same camp, but they were the liberal side of Judaism. These guys believed only the Torah as Scripture. Here's what they did not believe. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in supernatural gifts. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in eternal life. They did not believe in heaven, and they did not believe in hell. Now, what is happening in the portico probably is getting them upset. Wouldn't you think? Now the plot thickens, folks. The plot First of all, we, not, we know now that they're not just theologically compromised, they are politically corrupt. The Sadducees had conspired with Rome. Behind the scenes, people didn't know this was happening, not even the people they were serving with. The Sadducees had met with Roman leaders, and they said that the temple and all Jewish territory were really under Roman rule. They agreed to that. They probably got a pretty good kickback from Rome for it. And they, they allowed 
the other Jewish leaders to operate in a way that made them feel like they were in charge and calling the shots. But the Sadducees in Rome knew nothing happened unless Rome allowed it to happen. And the Sadducees signed off on that. They were okay with it. They allowed the Jewish leaders to believe the charade that they had control. So guys like Caiaphas believes he has deep-rooted control, but he doesn't have any control because Rome has all the control. And behind the scenes, without the high priest really knowing what's going on, the Sadducees meet with the Roman government, and they're saying, hey, listen, this is what these guys want to do. Should we talk them out of it? Should we let them do it? What should we do here? And then Rome calls the shots. The Sadducees come back into the conversation, and they steer the conversation wherever Rome wants it to go. So this attention that the apostles were getting it undermined their agreement with Rome. It undermined that. It, 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 was, it was about to expose them. Because if Rome hears of these thousands of people meeting in the portico, followers of Jesus, this guy that Rome signed off on them killing, supposedly getting rid of this movement, now there's all this mystery about what happened to his body, and Rome's like, let's just forget about this guy and move on, right? And the Sadducees say, yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to do. This won't happen again. Don't worry about their uprising. The Jesus guy's gone. Well, now it's bigger than it ever was. And the Sadducees, they fear Rome. They are deathly afraid of what Rome is capable of, and rightfully so. And in their human pride, the, the apostles are removing attention from them. They used to be the guys that drew the crowd and taught the people. They used to be the ones who stood in, the, in there. People came to them for advice, and people wanted to come to them and say, hey, listen, my, my son is sick, and he's ailing, and we don't know what to do. And the Sadducees would say, here's what you do. People used to come to them for this. Now they're coming in from the whole way outside of Jerusalem, and they're bringing them in on cots. Not only that, but these people are getting healed by the apostles. It's not only that they're getting attention, it's that the apostles' methods are working better than the Sadducees' methods. they got to get these guys off of the scene. So they arrest them. They put them in jail. Now, I find it hilarious. If you don't believe God has a sense of humor, then look at this passage again. Because the Sadducees don't believe in angels. And when the Sadducees lock these guys up in prison, what does God do? He sends an angel. He gets them out of the prison without the guards ever knowing that it happens. And then he tells them, uh, essentially, now I'm going to be snarky about it because that's just who I am. Uh, essentially, the angel looks at them and says, these dudes thought they could lock you up for preaching the word and stop you. They don't even believe in angels. Well, I'm here to tell you you're out of prison. They don't even know you're out of prison. When the sun comes up, you'll be back in that portico doing exactly what you got locked up for doing in the first place. And so that's what they did. Peter and John go back out to the portico in the morning. They got commanded, do not preach in the name of Jesus. Remember them being told that before? Now this is the punishment. Now these guys lock them up. The angel comes in, removes them from prison, and he tells them, when the sun comes up, you'll be back in the portico preaching the word again. They were commanded to go do exactly what they got locked up for. Now, let's pick up the story. Second half of verse 21. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, the Sadducees, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. 
Now picture this moment. I love it. They're, they get their whole party together. They're about to do these guys in for good. Not only that, intimidation tactics. We're going to get every leader in this room that we can fit in this room. Intimidation tactics. We're going to pull them up in front. We're going to put them on trial. We're going to put them to death. We're going to beat them up something. We're finally going to shut these guys up. We're going to have a show of force like they've never seen. So they gather everybody in. They're like, all right, we're ready. Go get the prisoners. That's where the scene stops, okay? Picture what's happening because I love it. Verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. Um, that's how I picture it starting. It's not, Luke didn't write it that way. That's just how I picture it. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, I guess so, wondering what this would come to. Uh-oh, what are people going to think about us when word gets out that we lost these two prisoners and nobody knows how? While they're thinking about that, while they're thinking about what happened to them, and someone comes in and tells them, verse 25, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Let's stop there for a second, because this is hilarious. Maybe you don't see it as hilarious as I do, but I think it's hilarious. Okay? These guys call in the whole show of force. They want to get these guys up and out of prison. They lock them up tight in prison. There's no windows. There's no, there's no way to get out except for the door that they threw them in through. The guards are standing at the door. Now, somehow, an angel came in, extracted them from prison without the guards ever even knowing they were gone. So they're like, okay, go get the prisoners. They go down, open the doors. Uh, they're not here. What do you mean they're not here? I mean, they're not here. I have no idea what happened. So then I picture leaders running down there looking in the prison themselves. What happened, you idiots? How did you lose these guys, right? Now they're perplexed. While they're, now they're trying to figure out, what are people going to think when, we find, when they find out that we lost these guys? In the meantime of them trying to protect their own egos, someone comes in and says, hey, guys, you might want to look out the window because those two guys you're looking for, they're out in the portico and they're preaching again. Go get them. <laughs> get them in here. And don't make a big to-do about it either because, I mean, as much as we want to kill them, those, there's a lot of people out there and they like those guys. So get them in here. Do it quietly. So now they're trying to clean it up and they're looking at everybody maybe isn't completely aware of the situation. Like, don't worry about it. We, we had this planned. It's all, this is how we wanted it to go down. It's okay. So now they're going to get down to the business, right? Verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Now they're finally able to do what they wanted to do in the first place, but they're already starting off from, they're kind of defensive, they're dumbfounded, but they, they got to get rid of these guys. And the high priest questioned them, Peter and John, saying, verse 28, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us because they're preaching about Jesus, and, and Peter just keeps saying, he keeps, he's going to say it again in about 30 seconds, which I love, but uh, he keeps saying, 
this Jesus whom you crucified. He just keeps saying that. He keeps reminding the people that the guys inside the building that want to shut us up, they're the ones who killed Jesus. They're the ones who thought they could kill Jesus. And so they're saying, you got to quit talking about Jesus. We told you to stop talking about Jesus indefinitely. Stop telling people that we're the ones that killed him, even though we were. But Peter and the apostles answered, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, I'm going to stop there and just say, this is, this is a moment where Peter and John are going back to the original calling that was given to them in Acts 1.8. You are to be my witnesses. You remember, it's a court term. If you remember going back to that first week that we looked at this, it's a court term. You are a witness. You are to be stand. You're going to have. You're going to be sworn to speak honestly, and God and Jesus tells them, "You are my witnesses." So you are sworn to speak honestly when you go out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. You are going to speak the truth about everything you've seen in me to the people. So this is hearkening back to that in verse 32 when he says, We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. So when they heard this, verse 33, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now they're, they're pushing all the wrong buttons with these guys, and they're okay with that. Verse 34, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He's saying, cool off, guys. I got some things we got to talk about here. And he said to them, verse 35, Men of Israel, take care that you are what you are about to do with these men. He's telling them, you, you better stop and think about what you're about to do. I see it in your eyes. You are enraged and you're about to murder these men. I want you to stop and think about that. He says, for before, verse 36, for before these days, Theotis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. and Let them alone. For this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That's some rock-solid advice for a guy in this situation. What he's telling them is that if these men are a flash in the pan drawing crowds away, then let them alone because someday they're going to die or they're going to slip up and the people who are following them are just going to fizzle away. But if this is men who are truly called by God to do what they're doing, even their death won't make this go away. And you might find yourself standing in direct opposition of God himself. So think long and hard about what you are about to do. Now, this guy must have had a massive amount of respect because it says that uh, they took his advice at the end of verse 39. So they took his advice. 
verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They're flexing their muscles one more time. And they're saying, okay, we don't want them to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. This time, the last time they let them go with the command, this time they beat them within an inch of their lives and then gave them the command again. Now, guys, this is, this is your warning. This is your shot across the bow. Quit teaching in the name of Jesus. Next time, it'll be worse. That's essentially the message that they want them to get. Then they left the presence of the council, like Dusty walked us through earlier, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What name? The name of Jesus. They counted themselves worthy to be in the same company as Jesus because the only other person that had had these kind of threats thrown at him and the kind of beating they just received was Jesus for the same reasons as they just got them. And they find that to be one of the most honorable positions they could ever hold. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease preaching the name of Jesus. So if you, if you just track this trial here, the Jewish leaders are, are, are afraid, like I said, they, they see their world start to crumble. Peter and John respond with boldness, and that's exactly what they prayed for in Acts 4. They prayed for boldness, and in this moment, God gives it to them, and they look at them and they say, hey, listen, we know you locked us up in prison. We got miraculously taken out of there, and the first thing we did was obey God. We went back out and preached the gospel. Now you're calling us in and telling us we can't do it anymore. But listen, this same Jesus who you crucified, who God raised from the dead, who you weren't able to stop, He's the one that through the power of the Spirit, who's also a witness to the works of Jesus, has filled us, and we're going to do His work. We're going to obey God before we obey you, because what you're telling us to do does not reflect what God has told us to do, and that is cause for disobedience. Did you catch that? The only time that it's right for us to rise up in complete defiance of any structure over us is when what we're being told to do is in direct defiance of what Jesus has already told us to do. The only reason they have a right to be what some could say disrespectful to their leaders is because these men's message and their commands are not reflective of Jesus and therefore they are worthy of defiance. Not just to prove a point, but to be consistent with the message of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. So that makes them really mad because one of the things they were confronting them on, don't speak in the name of Jesus and stop telling people we killed him. That's really annoying. So they say, well, I love Peter's response. We're going to obey God rather than men because the God of our fathers raised Jesus, by the way, whom you killed. Remember that part you hate me saying? It's true. You killed him. You thought you ended it. You didn't. 
That makes them even more angry. Gamaliel gives them some rock-solid advice. They take his advice to some extent, still flexing their muscles and trying to let these guys know they're in charge, trying to shut them up. And the apostles leave rejoicing because they are in very, very good company. You remember last week we played a video, John Piper recording, and he talked about uh, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott waiting to go in and speak to the Akas, and they go in and they're singing a hymn. They're singing a hymn, praising God, and by 4.30 in the afternoon, they were dead. The Akas, who they went to share the gospel with, killed them. And Piper says, and God rescued them. God protected them. And I remember hearing that and thinking, like, these men just got brutally killed by natives they were trying to share the gospel with. How did God protect them? And he had a long enough pause in his talk for me to think those things. And before I could get to the tail end of my thought, he answers my question. And he says he protected them from an unwillingness to go. He protected them from buying a house in the suburbs and saying someone else can reach the Alcas protected them from their own self-preservation. That, that is an aspect of following and obeying Christ that is foreign to us at times because we really like being comfortable. Do you realize what we never see the apostles doing, by the way? We never see them sleeping, in, especially in five-star hotels. The only time we see these guys sleeping is when Jesus told them not to, by the way. Jesus said, stay alert, and they were like, yeah, we got it, okay? After this moment in Acts, we don't see this happen. We don't see them like, we know it obviously happened at some point. They rested, but they might have just fallen asleep in the portico from exhaustion with their heads on rocks. And the people of the church were saying, Peter, you haven't eaten yet today. <laughs> Sit down, shut up for a couple minutes and eat. There was no like... There was no desire for earthly comforts. There was no desire for anything other than the people that were near them understanding who Jesus is and listening and hearing and allowing the Spirit to indwell them. There was no fear of what could happen to them. There was no fear of what might be taken from them. There was no fear of wondering what might happen to the people that they loved so dearly if they were taken off of the scene. There was no fear of losing their prominent position as the one who people were listening to. There was just radical obedience to the Spirit's work in their lives. So it leads me to ask two questions. One Am I ready to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ? Am I ready for that? If you just read the news, it's coming. It's coming. There's a day coming when things that are clear in this book are not going to be allowed for me to talk about without serious repercussions. Are we ready for that? Not just the guy up here, all of us. Are we ready to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ? Because really, folks, that's all that's at stake for us. You don't have anyone knocking on your door, arresting you for having a Bible. You don't have anybody pulling you out of your homes and taking your kids away from you and saying that you're going to work in this camp now because you've got to stop talking about Jesus. You don't have that. I don't have that. 
that doesn't look like it's on the horizon. So the thing that you're going to lose, the thing that you're going to suffer, quote unquote, the thing that I'm going to suffer is dishonor, is lack of earthly notoriety. That's what we're going to lose. That's what's at stake. Are you willing to sacrifice that for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to potentially lose a job or a position just for the, for the sake of Christ's name? See, because Peter and John said something that's remarkable to me. In the midst of this, knowing what these men did to Jesus, they look at them and said, we would rather obey God than men. And so my next question is, is that me? Is that you? Would you rather obey God than men? Would you rather live to the expectations of the kingdom than the expectations of people around you to get their approval? If we're being honest, people's approval of us is what drives a lot of our decision-making. It dictates where we live, how we live, what we drive, what we wear, where we eat, what we eat, how we interact on social media, all of that stuff is really driven by what we want other people to believe of us. So would we rather obey God than men? Would we rather suffer dishonor for the name of Christ because we know it's better? That's the church at its absolute best. That's what it looks like. God, thank you that you are an awesome healer, God, who restores us and makes us new and fixes us just like you did with the people that had ailments in the Old Testament, the people who, and in the New Testament here, and what we see is Peter being able to heal because of the power of your spirit in him. You heal us. You take care of our ailments. You give us your spirit. You fill us with power. You give us this mission to go out into the world that you've called us into. To live out this thing called faith. To allow people to see it. We would rather obey you than men. And I pray that that is our heart. That is our spirit. That's who we are. You are an awesome God. And you are worthy of every ounce of everything we have to offer you. So if you choose to take it, I pray you find us obedient. If you choose to use it for someone else, I pray you find us obedient to give it away. If you choose to allow us to have it, I pray that we use it for your glory and renown. And I pray that all of us can collectively do that, Lord, because that's the church at its absolute best. Mm -hmm.